it's been very frustrating, let me say, to try to write a column on global affairs without leaving your apartment for a year. I mean, how am I going to write a column if I don't even have a taxi driver taking me in from the airport to tell me what's really going on? Oh, exactly. I need a taxi driver. The voice of the people. Welcome to the News Items Podcast. As regular listeners know, we post episodes every Monday through Thursday afternoons. But on some Fridays, we release one of our interviews in its entirety, unedited, warts and all, for you to hear. Today, it's an interview with columnist Walter Mead, and it's coming right up. Today's guest is Walter Russell Mead, the Ravenel B. Curry Distinguished Fellow in Strategy and Statementship at Hudson Institute in Washington. Walter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. I read your uh, newsletter every day. It's the most important thing that I read every morning. Thank you for doing it. Oh, thank you very much. It's written for people like you, so I'm glad you enjoy it. Okay, great. Walter is the James Clark Chase Professor of Foreign Affairs and Humanities at Bard College and the Global View columnist at the Wall Street Journal. From 1997 to 2010, Mr. Mead was a fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, serving as the Henry A. Kissinger Senior Fellow for U.S. Foreign Policy from 2003 until his departure. He is a member of Aspen Institute Italy. He is the author of a book, Special Providence, American Foreign Policy and How It Changed the World, which was widely hailed by reviewers, historians, and diplomats as an important study that will change the way Americans and others think about American foreign policy. I could go on at some length about Walter's resume, but I think I'll stop there. It's good to see you again as well. I know. I haven't haven't seen you in a long time. It's been a while. I want to start uh, with Ben Rhodes, who was uh, President Obama's national security advisor, uh, referred to the Washington foreign policy establishment as the blob I think of the Washington opinion establishment as as the bigger blob. And one of the things that the bigger blob believes, of course, is that the U.S. is in decline and doomed and on and on. You wrote a great column last fall in which you said, actually, it's a world of geopolitical opportunity for the U.S. All this hand-wringing is misplaced. The U.S. is in a strong position. What caused you to write that? Well, John, you know, one thing is, uh, you know, we're reaching the point where you and I both have memories that stretch back for many decades. And as I, uh, as I look, think about my life, one of the things I realize is that one of the most constant factors of my entire life uh, has been the cry that America is in decline. And even uh, back in the 1950s, when I was barely aware They changed the way Americans were studying math because the Soviet Union had launched Sputnik and America was losing the space race because our kids didn't know math and it was a terrible thing. And so I had to learn base base five and all these like set theory and all these strange things in the third grade because of American decline. Uh, Then we had the missile gap. You know, they were eating our eating our lunch in outer space and. Well, the missile gap went away. And then, you know, there was the balance of payments deficit. There's a Vietnam War destroyed America's credibility forever. 
um, you know, just on and on, collapse of Bretton Woods. Then there was like Germany and Japan are the countries of the future. America's doomed. Japan is the new superpower. It's hopeless. We've failed. America has been failing, you know, all my life. And yet somehow, what is it that Orwell, I think it was, said that the dark night of fascism is always falling on the United States, but landing in Europe. <laughs> and the specter of decline has been with us. And yet somehow at the end of every episode of decline, people keep talking about, well, the United States still seems to, to have a few, you know, sort of has some decline left. <laughs> So I'm, I'm, I'm actually a little bit tired of, of the course because none of the people who will tell you America's in decline and, you know, you know, they're just so upset about it and so worried about it. None of them ever tell you why the other predictions of American decline were so wrong. But now something fundamental has changed. And this prediction of American decline is fundamentally different and therefore needs to be taken more seriously. No one ever does that. You pointed to two things that uh, contradicted the narrative, tech and fracking. Could you give us a look as to why you said those two things are so important? Well, it, you know, you look back at the, the last uh, 30 years and, you know, the, the rise of Silicon Valley and uh, the way these corporations, the corporations that have come out of it, the technologies that have come out of it are reshaping virtually every element of human society that's rather destabilizing and and you know has lots of consequences but it is you know it's clearly the case that, um, that the united states has been the leader in this immense wave of change and that 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 tech supremacy uh, contributed massively to the rise in american military power the fact that you know, where we might used to have to send an expeditionary force into, say, Syria to fight ISIS or something like that. You can really do it now with very small numbers of of people on the ground who are hooking up local forces to the information network that we can provide this whole range of, of capabilities. Um, yes, other countries are catching up. You can't rest on your laurels. But again, other countries perceive that, that what they need to do is to catch up with the United States. Then when it comes to uh, fracking, I think that when people look back at the history of the Obama administration, they're going to say that one of the biggest geopolitical changes in that period was that American oil output began to grow enormously. And that in the last 10 years, we've, we've actually at times surpassed Saudi Arabia as the largest producer of oil. That, Among other things, this allows us to significantly reduce our footprint in the Middle East, which I probably don't have to tell many of the listeners of this podcast is a very good idea if you're trying <laughs> to think about American foreign policy. The, the less you have to do there, the better off you are. You wrote a column in uh, September of last year uh, in which you wrote the headline of which was China and Russia wield dull wedges, uh, the wedge being between Germany and the U.S. What did you mean by that? Well, it's uh, first of all, let me just remind everyone on the podcast that, that column writers don't produce the headlines, don't write the headlines 
of their of their pieces. Yeah, you can tell me so about that. I've had some interesting. I've I've had a nuclear superpower try to cancel me uh, as a result of a <laughs> of a headline on a column that I did. Uh, for I appear to still be un uncancelled. So, uh, <laughs> but the uh, germ just when Russia and China, through commercial attractions or other things, seem to be drawing Germany away from the United States, which has got to be a fundamental objective of, of their policy. Um, they do something in the field of human rights or in the environment that, or, or even in trade that drives the Germans back toward the United States. So we've seen, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Greens are now the largest uh, party, according to the polling in, in Germany. And one of the big differences between the Greens and other German parties is a desire to, to take a much stronger stand against Russia and China based on human rights violations and on environmental issues. So, um, you know, Russia and China are, are really unable to, to exploit the, the considerable potential for driving wedges between the United States and Germany. And I suppose we, we should be grateful for that. And remember that we're not the only people in the world who have problems. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about Germany, actually, the, the rise of the Greens um, to the point, I guess, of parity. Um, is, that, is that surprising to you? What, to what do you attribute that? No, it's, it's not really surprising. Um, you know, the Greens have, have, been a, have changed a good deal over the years. I remember there was a time in Germany where you'd hear uh, the joke, you know, why don't students, why don't high school students go to Green Party meetings? And the answer is, well, they don't like to socialize with their teachers. <laughs> uh, That's great. But, um, but, you know, some very, you know, in part, it's the collapse of the traditional left, which is not just a German story, but very much a European story, that the sort of socialist, um, you know, democratic socialist working class based parties throughout Europe have gone into kind of a secular stagnation and decline. Um, you know, this is how the Tories won the red wall in, uh, in, in the UK and, and the, the energy on the left has sort of passed to the college educated Wokies. Right. And the greens are as close as Germany has to our own dear phenomenon of Wokies. Right. Right. But a muscular view, I guess that would be the word, uh, toward uh, Russia and China, which I based on human rights, you know, yeah. primarily, uh, and on yeah. the environment, yeah. Uh, but that's, you know, it's a good thing. But again, in Germany and in much of Europe, the the old social democrats were a key pillar of the Cold War coalition too. That the, you know, both the right and the left in Europe, while they had their concerns about the United States. And sometimes it's hard to tell at any given moment whether the right or the left has more anti-Americanism um, and not just in Germany, go to France. Um, but the um, uh, nevertheless, I think we're seeing kind of that pattern enduring that there's an ambivalence toward America on both the left and the right in Europe. And that kind of is staying in balance. I wanted to ask you one more question about Germany. The AFD, which is the right-wing party in Germany, has latched on to Dexit, uh, 
Deutschland's exit from the EU as a way to, you know, sort of resuscitate their fortunes. They've been stuck at kind of 10%. They did get into the into the Bundestag in the last election, but you know, they've been flat for the last year or so. Is is Dexit a vehicle for them to regain, I don't know, relevance, I guess is the word. I don't know. I'm not sure in the short term uh, that, that that could work. Um, you know, I mean, the difference, say, between Marine Le Pen, who has also abandoned formal, you know, support of Frexit, uh, right, right. but who is clearly very deeply Eurosceptical and is gaining in the polls, is the, EU, the EU is act, actually continues to work pretty well for Germany doesn't work right. as well for France. Right. Uh, and so um, so I think that, yeah, there, 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 there is a group of malcontents, unhappy people in Germany who don't like the EU. And if the EU continues to become more of what people call a, a transfer union, sort of a, where Germany is the, um, is the host and the others are the parasites in the German imagination. And, <laughs> Indeed. And right. Germany's paying for Italy, it's paying for France, it's paying for Spain, it's paying for Portugal. At some point, Dexit will become a more compelling call in Germany. Right now, they're just not there. Yeah. One of, we had lunch long ago and you said you thought the eventual solution to the EU was a neuro and a suro. Um, has that is that having has that gained any traction, or when you've talked about it, have people responded to it? And I, you know, I think the problem is, I, I think a lot of people can see that in principle, uh, giving uh, European countries a bit more monetary flexibility <laughs> uh, could be a good thing, but the practical problems would be, you know, just are are just Immense. enormous and and getting worse. Um, uh, I, you know, I think the euro. To me, as as an American traveling in Europe, when we can travel in Europe, and hopefully that will happen again soon, the euro is the greatest thing ever. You know, yes, exactly. You no longer travel <laughs> through Europe with a wallet full of pesetas and you know different kinds of liras and you know florins and you know goodness knows what. It's just like you just like it's the same stuff. It's wonderful. Yeah, it is. It really is great. But I don't think it's it's been a good thing for the EU. Yeah. I I don't think we can uh, talk to the Global View columnist from the Wall Street Journal without talking about the Thucydides uh, trap, um, which Graham Allison, I think, wrote a book with that title. Uh, and it holds that a rising power like China must clash with an established power uh, like the U.S. She wrote a very great, I mean, I think it was, uh, I think Paul Gigo told me it was the best column that ran in the on the op-ed page in 2018, in which you said it it wasn't a, the Thucydides trap wasn't the problem. The problem was that imperialism will be very dangerous for China. Can you explain why? Yeah. Um, well, I did, of course, in that column, and your our listeners well, I are can't welcome. read the column. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, look, I think. Um, if you look at, at the BRI, uh, Belt and Road Initiative, what you what you actually see there is that China is China is facing a real economic problem, which is that over the years of China's own construction of its economy, it's built up all of these you know steel companies and concrete companies and 
infrastructure companies, um, and you know, and they want to stay in business and they want to grow. <laughs> Surprisingly, <laughs> yes, I know it's <laughs> remarkable. Their employees want to keep their jobs, uh, and yet, you know. China doesn't need as much infrastructure as it used to, and yet it has a lot more infrastructure building capacity than it used to. There are many other problems like this. So what do you do? Well, the answer is you figure out a way to get Pakistan to place orders for billions and billions of dollars of Chinese infrastructure. And you figure out how to get Uganda and Tanzania and Zimbabwe to do this. Uh, and the infrastructure companies are happy. The, the problem is that this is actually what Lenin, this is literally what Lenin described as imperialism. Right. Which is when a, when a country has surplus capital and surplus capacity and that its domestic market, its home market can't meet, it needs to go out and develop those markets elsewhere. Um, but then the investments required are so large. You know, here's China you know, with a, whatever it is, a $15 billion copper mine or something like that somewhere, you can't go to all that trouble and then have some African country wake up and say, oh, by the way, we don't like this and we're nationalizing it. It's ours now. <laughs> so so your investments are so large that, you're, that the financial investment drives a political entanglement. And right. then, but meanwhile, in the country, your investment is not as popular as it ought to be because what's driving it is not this is not how Zimbabweans would have developed Zimbabwe if they'd only been thinking of themselves. This is how, you know, the, the railroads and the development is along the lines of what's good for China and the exports that China wants from Zimbabwe, et cetera. So you and then it's like, well, why aren't they paying better wages? Why aren't they hiring more Zimbabweans in key managerial positions, et cetera? Right. So you end up having an unpopular political and economic entanglement. And I think that's where China is going. I wanted to ask you uh, about Hindu nationalism's rise in India. And you had argued that that would help uh, the U.S. check China. Um, could you take us through that a little bit? Well, the core argument here. Um, and I'm, I'm sure I'll be coming back to this in the column because it's a it's a pretty critical set of ideas. Is that you know if if you if the U.S. tries to compete one on one with China, you know I actually think we might win, but it's a pretty tough uh, tough thing to do. And China has a large population, and it's going to grow. Not the population, but the economy. And with right. the economy, its military significance so on. Political weight will grow. But if you think about what we're looking at is not really the rise of China, but it's the rise of Asia, you see a very different picture. And this has to do with the Thucydides trap as well, that if every country in Asia were performing kind of at its full developmental capability, Asia's too big even for China to dominate. You have India, which has now a population larger than China's. You have Vietnam, you have Japan, you have Indonesia. If all of these countries are moving ahead and growing, then Asia is just too complicated, too big, and too full of countries with wills of their own for any country, whether it's the United States or China or anybody else, to rationally aspire to hegemony. Right. 
And so the, in a sense, the, the best counter, while, while one needs a military component to a, to a China strategy, you know, and can't let them take Taiwan, et cetera. Right. Um, the, the long-term answer to this is not an endless arms and race and political race between the U.S. and China. It's, it's the development of Asia, and India is the key to that. And for that to happen, India, which is, I mean, India is more as a more complicated place than Europe is. More languages are spoken there. More people live there. There are more different cultural identities there. In, there are more different levels of development inside that country. Um, India has glaciers and it has jungles. I mean, it's, it's, it's a world. And by the way, if readers are looking for, uh, listeners are looking for a place to, to visit, to learn about the world once this COVID situation is, is, is dealt with, I just strongly recommend that people get to know India. It's well worth it and a lot of fun. The food is terrific. The food is terrific. I wanted to ask you just, you know, the pandemic has exploded in India. Um, I remember reading about, uh, I don't know, you know, two months ago or something, there was an article that said India had uh, appeared to have come through the pandemic in relatively good shape. And I remember reading that and thinking, how is that possible? Um, that can't possibly be true. But, you know, there it was, and, and it seemed to be, shared opinion around, uh, at least around the journals that I was reading. What, what impact will this catastrophe have on, on the region, I guess? Well, this, right. This is, I think, potentially a, a very big story. I mean, obviously a very big story at the moment in terms of human tragedy and so on. Uh, but in terms of, um, of the future of India, um, what I, what I was writing about earlier when we were getting into this was that the rise of Hindu nationalism in India represented sort of the reality that the old secular ideals of the Congress Party, which governed India for most of the first uh, 50 years of independence or more, no longer have the same kind of appeal in India. And a country that large and diverse needs a governing philosophy. And while Hindutva has, a, has problems as a, as a ruling philosophy, um, it's one that does have a lot of majority appeal in India. And so that the BJP under Modi have been able to, you know, create another part, another system of stable governance for India, you know, like the Congress party at its peak once had. Um, the COVID, the, the pandemic is undermining Modi's legitimacy. Uh, in some of the ways that it was a problem, for, say, for, for Donald Trump in the United States. Where this goes, it's very hard to say. Uh, he is popular. His opponents are unpopular. But a failure on this scale, you know, and, and India's problems are, are look likely to become much greater than anything we faced in the United States, drives a political society to pretty deep self-reflection. And when that happens politics can change in very unexpected ways. So what? So, can India find a way to govern itself consistently and strongly, given all the elements in Indian society that, that have different worldviews or different priorities or different interests? That's the big question. And anything that weakens Modi at this point and doesn't produce an alternative is 
you know, weakens India. And that, in turn, has implications for the broader balance of power in Asia. I wanted to ask you uh, about the possibility of uh, secession movements in India. Do you think that's a realistic threat, I guess? I mean, you know, over in, in the long run, anything is possible. Um, right. You know, that's true. <laughs> and then uh, you're dead. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, I think it's, you know, the United Kingdom is more likely to break up in the short term than India is significantly more likely. I have to say, if, if I were if I were Boris Johnson, I think I wouldn't worry so much about um, blocking a referendum as I would about um I don't know, rigging a referendum in the sense that it seems very logical to me that that anybody who was born in Scotland but now lives in in England or Wales or Northern Ireland, why shouldn't they also be able to vote in a referendum on Scottish independence? That so you open registration to anybody with with connections to Scotland, and of course those are the pe- those are the Scots who benefited tremendously from the opportunities of the United Kingdom. And so in a way, just having people who currently live in, were, you know, currently are living in Scotland is a gerrymander that artificially inflates, seriously, artificially. I agree. Ins- I know, that's, that's a brilliant idea. That's inflates a- the strength of the independence movement. I think, I think you could have an, a referendum a year for the rest of time and it would keep losing if Scots who are working in London, et cetera, are able to vote. And I can't honestly think of a good moral or ethical reason why they shouldn't be permitted to vote. Oh, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that, that uh, you know, from your, your mouth to uh, Dominic Cummings' ears, except Dominic well, is not, no longer it, there. Not so. Dominic anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll have to find out who his replacement is. Um, I wanted, I, before we leave China, I wanted to uh, talk about strategic flexibility to strategic certainty regarding uh, Taiwan. What Can you give us the state of play in Taiwan? Um, we had a policy, I think it was called strategic flexibility, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and now or ambiguity, strategic see, ambiguity. That's right, strategic ambiguity. And now we have the blob saying, "No, no, strategic uh, certainty." Right. Um, what's that all about? As is sadly often the case with the blob, not very much. Um, <laughs> look, I think um, the real problem is that ten years ago, it was clearly impossible even to the Chinese to imagine China actually being able to win a military confrontation over the future of Taiwan. Uh, The balance of forces was just so great. And in those circumstances, a policy of the U.S. saying, well, we're not sure what we would do if that happened, Um, but, but very carefully having an overwhelming uh, military force, uh, you know, arrayed on that, um, that worked pretty well. I, you know, that's, that's kind of TR's dictum, speak softly and carry a big stick. Perfect. It minimized the friction in U.S.-China relations because we weren't rubbing anyone's noses in any in unwelcome realities. But it also minimized the chance of an actual crisis over Taiwan. Because for the Chinese leadership to try to take Taiwan and then fail would be an unimaginable catastrophe. So you had deterrence and then a polite silence. Right. Now, 
I must say, in one of the greatest acts of incompetence and foolishness that history knows of, the Americans allowed that to dissipate. And if you want to know just how bad American the American press is at covering actual news, think about how little attention there was in the press to this gradual but cumulative set of changes that have now sort of moved it from a clear margin of military superiority for the U.S., et cetera, around Taiwan to what you could call a gray zone, where the outcome is no longer really quite as predictable as it should be. Now, the blob's idea of how we should deal with this is that as our stick gets smaller, we should talk more loudly. So, you know, whittle down your stick, but but speak more belligerently and provocatively. This is the word cretinous comes to mind, you know, because what what it does is it it both provoke it. It angers China and therefore poisons the U.S.-China relationship politically, even as it increases the chance that China might try to do something. So, you know, again, I would say, now it, I will say in defense of people who right now are talking about we need to toughen up our rhetoric, if toughening up our rhetoric is clearly backed by a policy that is restoring an overwhelming margin of, of security, you know, then that may be a way of bridging this gray zone trap. Uh, but the goal should be to get back to a place where reality, without the Americans posturing or pounding their chests or anything like that, reality makes it clear to folks in Beijing that, you know, what is it? My second grade teacher used to have a little sign in, in the room. We look at things but do not touch, although we want to very much. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. Speaking of things that uh, that we do not touch, uh, Mr. Putin is had amassed a vast force uh, in eastern Ukraine. Um, I think. Uh, there's some considerable commentary that really it's about taking control of the Black Sea. I don't think the listeners to this podcast really understand what's going on and what that means, taking control of the Black Sea. And I wondered if you could walk us through that a little bit. Well, I'll, I'll be able to say a bit more about this um, in, a, in about six weeks. I'm, I'm heading off, uh, hopefully, on a trip to that part of the world and uh, you know, it's uh, it's been very frustrating, let me say, to try to write a column on global affairs without leaving your apartment for a year. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and one does feel, you know, it's like, I mean, I mean, how am I going to write a column if I don't even have a taxi driver taking me in from the airport to tell me oh, what's exactly. really going on? The voice of the people. It's been unbelievably <laughs> frustrating. I need a taxi driver. Um but uh, look, I don't think Putin wants at this point all of Ukraine. You know, I don't think he can afford it. Ukraine is very expensive. Ukraine, um, you know, needs money to pay its Gazprom bill. And to some degree, what we have is a situation where the West subsidizes Ukraine in various ways, and then Ukraine 
because of those subsidies, is able to keep importing oil and gas from Russia, much to the benefit of Putin and his associates. Um, this is, you know, this is not a bad, you know, Putin, what Putin doesn't want to see happen in Ukraine is for a, a Slavic country that many people in Russia would see as very similar to their own to establish a healthy, functioning, stable democracy that's well integrated into the West. Because the lesson on that to a lot of people in Russia is, well, if they can do it. We can do it too. Right. And for Putin, it's very important to have the idea that, well, you know, all this democracy stuff, that may work fine for the French and the English and the American. You know, they do what they do. But we Slavs, we Russians, we have our own path. And our own path happens to involve me running everything. Uh, it's just the way it is. <laughs> and so you undermine that and you are striking at, at, the, at the heart of Putin's power. So, as but as long as the West is paying Ukraine's bills and Ukraine is failing to cohere into a, you know, modern, successful, fully integrated state, Putin is not unhappy with that status quo. Right. It seems to me. Right. And, and that's an element I think that a lot of people in the, in the West miss that, that Putin, um, doesn't have a need to do a lot around the Ukraine right now. Now, if he wants to, you know, the longer game uh, of Turkey versus Russia is a very interesting thing to think about. I think, uh, don't hold me to these numbers, but I remember reading not long ago that something like, there've been something like 11 wars between Turkey and Russia since the 18th century um, that, that Russia started all of them and won almost all of them. Uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. And, you know, it's clear that relations between Erdogan and Putin have been going downhill, that uh, Putin did not, while well, he managed to, to make the Azerbaijan-Armenia war work sort of okay for him, to some degree it's read by people in the region as Turkish client beats Russian client. Yes, exactly. And that's not the kind of story Putin likes to have told. You know, if you're going to if you're going to lose, lose to the United States. Don't lose to Turkey. <laughs> right. uh, Makes you look bad. So, you know, is Putin looking for ways to reassert himself uh, in that region? I, I think it's not unlikely, but it's not altogether clear just what he might want, you know, just where the opportunity is. Why not just, it's summer, it's a good, I mean, it's spring, it's a good time for maneuvers. Why not just do it? The soldiers, you're already paying for the soldiers. They're somewhere anyway. Right, um, right. You know, why not move the pieces around on the chessboard? It's not clear to me that there is a, a master plan here. It's more opportunistic. Let's go here and see what happens. And then maybe right. we try this. Right, Exactly. Before we uh, leave, I, I want to ask you, you wrote us, I think, one of the seminal essays about American politics years ago, I guess. Uh, to, I can't remember, but it was called The Blue Model. And you talked about how the blue model, which is essentially a triad, labor, government, and business working in harmony, raises uh, wages rising, 
social conditions improving, etc., how that came undone, and what nothing yet has really emerged to replace it as a model. Could you take our listeners through that? Sure, and try anyway. Um, if you look back at the Industrial Revolution, you see it was like, you know, for the first hundred years or so, the Industrial Revolution was incredibly chaotic. And people, you know, factories were emerging and you'd have these big economic booms and then busts and people would be laid out of work and starving, not because the crops failed, which was the old way you had trouble, but because like the banking system didn't work or there was a surplus of cotton or whatever, of textiles. Um, and you had these great disparities. You had the, the Morgans and the Carnegies and so on becoming incredibly rich. And then you had all these steel workers that are working, you know, 84 hour weeks for subsistence or less pay, no social safety net. It looked as if society was going into this kind of, um, you know, class warfare, polarization. Nobody really knew what to do. By the end of World War II, we kind of figured that out. How do you run an industrial society? How do you have a central bank that keeps the financial system from exploding? How do you organize production so that you have companies that are strong enough and stable enough to manage the inevitable ups and downs? Um, and you had this pattern of you had one telephone company, you had three big car companies, you had three networks. There were these sort of uh, the seven sisters oil companies. There were these oligopolies and monopolies that were regulated by the government. I mean, like banks couldn't, you know, had to had to offer the same products with the same interest rates. The way they used to compete was they'd give you a toaster if you opened an right. account. Right, exactly. Uh, and uh, so this, everything was regulated. Bus companies couldn't add a route or drop a route or change a fare without permission from the government. Now, the net result of this for people who got into the system was lifetime employment. I mean, if the phone company has a monopoly, it isn't going to close a factory just because this year the factory didn't make a profit. Right. Um, especially, by the way, since their rates were regulated in a way that their profit was like, okay, 6% or whatever of their total expenses. <laughs> so you could actually make money on a money-losing factory. <laughs> so layoffs were rare. <laughs> um, and, you know, what broke this up, I think, uh, basically was the information revolution, right. where we go into another period of rapid technological change. Globalization has something to do with it because you no longer have stable national oligopolies and monopolies, but suddenly Toyota and Volkswagen are horning in on Detroit's little protected car market, etc. So you force everybody away from these blue model stable um, conditions. And, you know, it's, it's a bit of a problem. Nobody wants to go back to the products of the blue model era. Nobody wants to drive like a General Motors car of the 1960s. Nobody wants a rotary phone um, <laughs> where there's only one phone. Nobody wants, nobody wants the products of the blue model, but everybody wants a blue model job. Right. Um, you know, employment for life, hard to get fired, stable pension, all of this stuff. And so in American politics, we see this tremendous frustration that 
uh, you know, we have the cornucopia of wonderful products and innovation. But for many people, the job, which after all is what connects most people to like the economy and even society, is precarious. Uh, it's it's not uh, doesn't give you a lot of power or respect, uh, and it can go away at any moment. So we are, you know, and and. and because we've left that stable area era of the industrial revolution where the where the the technocrats knew the answers if you have right. an inflation problem you do this right you know if you have an unemployment problem you do that etc we we don't have the cookbook doesn't work anymore and so the technocrats don't have answers and this is driving people crazy yeah I was talking to Mickey Kaus the other day. We did an interview with him, and he said that you had uh, made an interesting point, which is that the elites uh, in American finance and business and so on and so forth don't really need the rest of the country anymore. Um, and they used to because they needed labor uh, and they needed people to fight their wars, but now – you know, they don't need labor so much. They can find that all around the world. And the army, the armed forces have gone to uh, voluntary service. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, this is, you know, the, uh, the industrial working class used to be an amazing power in, in the life of the country. I mean, if the if the coal mine, if in 1950 the coal miners and the steel workers went on strike, the economy would grind to a halt. Right. People couldn't stay. You couldn't generate electricity. People would be cold. No factories could work. Um, it would be a disaster. And therefore, you had to keep the coal miners happy. Right. <laughs> uh, and. You know, it means politicians had to know what the coal miners wanted and know how to give it to them and know how to talk to the coal miners, all of these things. And again, in the same way, these the wars of the 20th century, World War One, World War II, even the Civil War, you, you needed a mass conscript army to survive as a state. And over and over again, you know, the Russian, the Russian Empire collapses in World War One because the conscripts stop wanting to fight for the, for the czar. <laughs> and the, you know that's what defeated the Germans in 1918. Is fundamentally that the army just lost heart. Um, so you you depend on the working class. And that means if you're going to have a successful career in the elite, you know, you know, for example, if you're going to like get elected to Congress, you have to like serve in the military, and you know that means you've got to like and you've got to serve well. So you've got to actually be able to get those guys to work with you. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. uh, you know, so your, your education and your training as a, as a rising member of the elite, a lot of this is about like, you know, getting to know people who aren't in the elite, getting to understand them, thinking hard about how do they see the world? And then how do I like try to lead them in a direction, which I think is good for them. Maybe also good for me, who knows, but <laughs> possible. Um, yeah, it's possible. It may, <laughs> may maybe win-win. <laughs> Uh, but, um, today I think actually our elite educational system is more based on people who can't say, you know, who speak a different language from the proles, who don't understand, don't like the proles, who think any attempt to reach out to them is somehow like de classe. Oh, yes. Um, 
And so we're, you know, we're sort of drifting apart as a society. And where the non-elites still have power is at the ballot box. Yes. And so the so elections become the place where um, you know, where these issues can be fought out. And I think in both 2016 and 2020, we saw that dynamic very much at, at play. Did we ever? I think we've reached the end of our road here, but Walter, thank you very much for doing the podcast. And uh, I hope we can have you back uh, maybe after you get back from the Ukraine or Ukraine. <laughs> it is hard. We grew up saying the Ukraine. I know, it's still hard I know. just to say Ukraine. I, I will say the Ukraine is uh, Tim Snyder's book about bloodlands. Yeah. Is is stuck with me uh, ever since I read it. Just the what happened to Ukraine is just absolutely yeah. astonishing. I drove across Ukraine in in 1990 when it was still part of the Soviet Union. So, you know, coming up from Georgia um, across the whole thing, coming out into uh, what's now Slovakia, and um, it was, you know, you get a sense both of just the um, the degree of which, you know, the, just the repression that it had experienced, the human toll of the 20th century there. You also got a, a real sense of the difference between East Ukraine and West Ukraine. Um, it's an experience I would, you know, I'd recommend to everybody take a road trip across Ukraine, but it uh, right now might not, it, the East might be a little tricky. <laughs> I have to get one more thing from you, which is the story of you uh, going to North Korea and getting to the roundabout and having to get out of the car. Can you tell that story? You remember that? You had to put flowers at the foot of oh, the statue. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, the, uh, you know, so many memories of North Korea. Uh, this was in the nineties, and um, they were. Uh, it was at the time, still the time of official mourning for the death of Kim Il Sung. The great leader had passed on, and the dear leader, um, his son, was beginning to um, put things together. But uh, the ritual was, and you, and you had to know this. First of all, you had to go to Beijing to get a visa to get to North Korea. I was, I was going because I was on the advisory board of a charity that was providing food aid um, during the uh, famine in North Korea that followed some floods. And uh, they told me there that what I had to do was buy flowers in Beijing because I wouldn't be able to get them in North Korea. Because on your way in from the airport to the hotel, the car would stop and you would need to go out and lay flowers at a memorial for Kim Il-sung. Uh, and sure enough, <laughs> uh, fortunately, I bought the flowers. They were kind of wilted because our plane was stuck on the runway for three hours in Beijing without air conditioning. So it was, oh, you know, the flowers and I were very wilted <laughs> by the time we reached uh, Pyongyang. Uh, and however, they were there. So I get out of the car and there was a little bit of a discussion because they really wanted you to bow sort of so that you were parallel with the ground. <laughs> and, uh, but you, you know, said, I, no way, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> well, what I said was, you know, when uh, at my grandmother's funeral, when her coffin passed down the church, I showed them how I bowed as the coffin went out. I said, and so I will give the same respect <laughs> that I gave to my grandmother. 
which you know seems to me to be a fair. Uh, That's a fair trade, absolutely. Um, and they, you know, they must have thought so too. I wasn't shot. Um, so, but as you go up to do this, suddenly music from recorded speakers <laughs> starts up. I guess it's the Korean national anthem or something. And you find out later that this is broadcast. The, the pictures of foreigners coming from all over the world to pay tribute to Kim Il Sung are broadcast on television. Oh my God. <laughs> so, um, it is funny. I, I, you know, I, in those in the '90s, I spent a fair amount of time in Cuba, and the Cubans had always told me, you know, one thing about Fidel: say what you like, and this would be people even who were anti-Castro would say, he's never really gone in for the cult of personality. And I would, you know, in Cuba, I don't know. I see, I hear a lot about Castro down here. And, you know, Fidel seems to be a very visible presence in in Cuba. I don't know what you're talking about. When I got to North Korea, I understood exactly what they meant. <laughs> and, oh, that's uh, great. <laughs> you know, so, to, so at the time, you know, compared to Pyongyang, Havana was Amsterdam. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Great to have you and great to see you again. Uh, hopefully, post-pandemic, we'll be able to get together and have dinner. I'm looking forward to it, John. John Ellis here again. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in again on Monday through Thursday next week for our regular episodes where Rebecca and I discuss geopolitics, finance, science, and technology. I read your uh, newsletter every day. It's the most important thing that I read every morning. Thank you for doing it. Well, make sure that's in the uh, podcast, okay? <laughs> Can we just play that over and over and over again? Okay. <laughs>